you know, one theory about one of the things that's going on under plant medicine, such as ayahuasca, is that we enter a state in which the holograms or the information being transmitted by these biophotons becomes perceptible to us. And, you know, they posit that perhaps one of the mechanisms of vision is, uh, of the visionary state rather, is the perceptibility suddenly of these biophotonic transmissions. And that would make sense as it pertains to both biophotons being emitted by DNA itself, but as it pertains also to the pineal gland and its innate receptivity to photons. It possesses the same rods and cones that allow our retinas to perceive visible light. And so it would make all the sense. And obviously it's been referred to throughout the ages of time as a third eye. And, you know, there's a million theories as to as to it being the mediator for visionary states and, and you know, our perceptivity to visions under psychedelics. Today, I'm sitting down with Ben Joseph Stewart, who is a filmmaker, musician, writer, and philosopher known for his thought-provoking documentaries and lectures on various topics surrounding consciousness, spirituality, and metaphysics. He has produced several incredible documentaries, including Chimatica, Awaken the Darkness with Aubrey Marcus, the Psychedelica series on Gaia TV, and DMT Quest which have gained massive followings among those interested in alternative perspectives on reality and spirituality. And he's also a musician and has released several albums with his band, Hero Sonic. Ben, I'm so happy to sit down with you today, dude. And I really, really, really respect your work. And I find you to be extraordinarily talented at compositing information of many kinds in a way that's super easy to digest, which is obviously incredibly important. And you and I also find interest in and deep dive on many of the same topics and phenomena looking through a syncretic lens to draw parallels and new articulations and expansive perspectives on things like life and consciousness and spiritual phenomena and overall uniting mysticism and science, which is something that lights me on fire. And, you know, you do so also in a way that collapses the need for dogmatic thinking or dogmatic perspectives. And... I really appreciate that. And you and I originally connected while spending a week together in the jungle drinking ayahuasca with Aubrey and the crew. And dude, we had some absolutely potent ceremonies and you captured some insanely paranormal occurrences on audio during ceremony, which maybe we'll share in the future. But overall, that was a super transformative week for myself and all of us. And I've sat with a lot of medicine, but that week in particular was a huge pivot point in my journey in so many ways. And I know in, in many of us, many ways for many of us who were there. And uh, so it was a really great way to drop in with each other for the first time and start probing into each other's minds. And here we are, dude. So there's so much that we can talk about. Let's just jump in and welcome to the Ancient Futurist Podcast. How are you feeling? Dude, I'm feeling great, man. Um, little congested, but we'll be good on that front. But yeah, man, dude, I, I really appreciate you bringing me on, man. That was a great week down in Costa Rica. Uh, just caught you in Austin with a friend of mine at uh, Entheogenesis. And uh, it's cool to be back on, um, yeah, to be back on this pod. Actually, is this the first? 
You were on my pod before, oh, but I haven't been on yeah. yours, right? Right, right. Yep. Yeah. We're swapping. Finally, finally got it going. All right. <laughs> yeah, brother. All right. So it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, right before we hit record, we were riffing on so much stuff that we can talk about. And but man, you know, before we get into some of some of my topics, uh, I really want you to kind of start by guiding our direction for a sec by dropping us into what's been lighting your soul on fire lately. Like, what have you been diving in on most recently? I know you go all over the place and are just as curious as I am. So I'm curious to know, you know, where, where your mind's at lately. Yeah, you know, the, the one through line with everything that I work on is, um, or I research and, and all the art that I make is in line with, I, I think we are an enigma to ourselves. We have so much potential but that we perceive things in a framework that is disempowering. And we look at the things inside the framework, like all the, all the paintings hanging on the wall, and we think those are the things that are really guiding um, us or limiting us or propelling us. But really, it's the framework itself. Like the framework is not feng shui inside most people's minds or their psyches. And so all of my art, uh, everything I research whether it's, you know, sometimes it's conspiracy, sometimes it's where mythology, uh, ancient mythology meets modern day. Like right now, I'm really researching Moloch and how the idea of Moloch back in the day is alive today, just in different garments. Um, but I really, really like taking a look at the human body and human anatomy. Um, there was this, I was actually just watching, there's this guy, uh, Josh Trent at Wellness Force, just came across my feed. And uh, he interviewed these two cats that were talking about mana. And so it was a product placement, but they were talking about how the body uses the water in the body to electrically charge the body. And that's, that should be evident to all of us that we're electromagnetic beings. But then I started understanding that all my research of the myofascial system, which is connective tissue, all anatomists for as long as history, they've been cutting that stuff away like it's packing material to get to the good stuff, right? The organs and the brains and uh, muscles and stuff. But it's the fascia that connects all systems to all other systems. It is always around the spine, which is the tree of life. And we can get into that maybe later. And it has this pulse and it electrifies us into form, in our, into our specific exquisite form. And I think this is what yoga was all about, your posture, how you align your fascia is actually how you're also aligning consciousness and aligning that with nature around you. So I've been super fascinated on that. But th again, the through line is, you know, I, I try and find what people are scared of. So I do look at conspiracies because I'm not worried about like, you know, world shattering ideas. And often I don't believe in all conspiracies. I think they're uh, quite hyperbolic. But to look at them is interesting because you end up exposing yourself to new ways of thought. And then you get to look at it and examine it. And then you look at how could this actually be perfect instead of it being evil or sinister or something like that? How could this just be your framework that that it served you once, but it's not serving you anyway, it needs an upgrade, it needs a, you know, in cymatics, where like the, the simple geometry needs to go to a more complex geometry when the frequency goes up, it has to go mm -hmm. chaos first. And I just got over a cold. I, I was even thinking as I was getting, I had this sickness. This is not only an upgrade, like viruses are upgrades to your system, but it's shedding the old. There's something about those moments that you could treat them like ceremony. And if you really stay aligned and in your center, you can make some quantum leaps during these periods. And that's what I feel like I've been going through. So 
again, my, my whole through line, what's been lighting me on fire layer, you know, lately, um, other than like fever is, um, really understanding that like the things that I'm picking up on through social media, it's not that the world's falling apart. It's that the, the chaos period of cymatics is happening. And this is very potent and pregnant with potential for how we can step into authoring a part of what the next world looks like rather than just being reactionary. Right. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate what you said about uh, like really diving in on the human anatomy and myofascia. And I actually on the last episode of the podcast was speaking with someone very deeply about fashion and expressing how I really am impatient on us for us to for us to understand it on deeper levels, because it has seemingly been ignored, particularly by Western society. And it, it definitely seems to be the unavoidable interface between the mind and the body, perhaps the mind of the body in and of itself. And it seems to hold memory and hold trauma and specific local spots that can be released through various modalities. And it's definitely some type of hyper intelligent connective tissue. It's not just an accident or a piece of elastic that keeps us from falling apart. And so I'm really excited for for us to uh, to to really begin to understand it. And I have a deep hunch that when we do begin to understand it, which I'm confident we will, that it will be paradigm shifting in its revelations. Yeah, dude, there's something about fascia that has me endlessly hooked. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we, we didn't look at it. Uh, it. It looked brown and, you know, it wasn't translucent because we always saw it in cadavers. We never saw it in living tissue until Jean-Claude Gimberto, he's this French anatomist, uh, who started sticking tiny microscopes under the skin and he made films about it. One was called Strolling Under the Skin. It's beautiful. And the, like he gets into the fractal communication network of the fascia. I won't even go there, but just look at it. It's definitely fiber optic. So when you're young and you're healthy and you don't have adhesions in your fascia, which happens from like sitting in a certain posture too long or chronic injury or you know, not having good posture and then just like um, fortifying your muscles to hold you in that kind of posture. When you're young, it's translucent and the biophotons that we emit from inside us, and we know this, um, you know, like you can even have a heart-centered meditation and now there's technology that can pick up on, you will have an explosion of biophotons from the heart center if you do a heart-centered meditation. Those biophotons are being shared throughout the body definitely through fiber optic material, whether that is some mistake of nature, or if it was set up like that, so it could communicate in different ways. And the beautiful thing about it is it hooks up under the, um, the skull. So your movement is actually massaging your brain. If you have correct gait cycle, it will allow the sphenoid bone, which is right behind the nose and everything. And it, it sits right atop the palate. Um, and on top of that is this little groove called the Celica Tursica, where the pineal and pituitary complex is. And this is the most complex bone in the human body. It looks like a moth or a bat. And as you walk, it uh, flexes. And that milks the pituitary pineal complex and keeps it healthy. People with gait cycle where their legs are sprawled out like that and their psoas is, um, is kind of tight so it's moved out to the side they notice that people with bad gait cycle, it freezes in place and it doesn't move anymore, which causes a mm -hmm. lot of downstream endocrine effects. 
Um, I, I won't go on and on and on with fascia, but there are receptors in it that orient you, not just in space, but also seemingly in time. There are some philosophers that say that. And then the last person I'll throw out there is Jap Vandervall. He's a Dutch embryologist who studies the evolution of fascia from the embryo on. And he says the entire thing is a story. And as a filmmaker, I, I take that really, really deeply because everything I see, we, we build a top story. We, make, we not only invent story, but we really discover story. And we encrypt it into literature, into songs, into dances. But somehow it's also very much so encrypted in the body itself. And when we get stuck, obviously that is where we store trauma that we don't want to look at because these are places that we don't want to bring blood, fresh fluid, fresh oxygen, fresh nutrients to. We're kind of isolating it for a later time to where we're more equipped to handle it, but we never get back to it. We never go through, oh shit, you know what? I haven't, I haven't taken care of that, you know, childhood trauma that I had. Like, you know, I'm going to do that this week. We don't really go about things that way and not that it should be that linear. Um, but our body really is some kind of, uh, I don't denigrate it to saying it's a computer, but what we're trying to recreate by making computers is this beautiful enigma that we still don't understand. Exactly. That was a solid riff. And I would appreciate for anybody listening who might not be aware, if you could clarify what two things are, biophotons and the gate cycle. I love <laughs> the notion of biophotons and would love to riff on that. But first, you want to explain a little bit for anyone listening what exactly those two things are? Yeah, biophotons are simply photons of light that are produced within the body. So we produce light. And actually, have you ever heard uh, crickets slow down? So you hear like almost like an orchestra, if you mm. slow down crickets or frogs, if you slow down and amplify the noises that um, happen throughout your body, just the creaking and you know, clicks and stuff like that. It sounds fascinating. Uh, you know, maybe I'll try and find it. I think it was on BitChute maybe, or maybe it was even before that, but it's just fascinating. Um, so phonons are particles. I don't really believe they're particles. That's just how we would perceive it in the moment, uh, a wave, something that has no beginning, no end. Um, but phonons are audio and photons are light and bio part of it is just what is produced from within it's not something that we receive from the outside right. gate cycle is literally the biomechanics of how you walk so that's your gate cycle so some people they have like um a, an injury and they overcompensate it by not really landing the same way on their right foot as they do on their left foot and that causes for all kinds of like asymmetries in the linkage chain all the way up the, the tree of life, the spine, in the way that our neck is positioned, all those kinds of things. You know, if you write a lot or you use your, hand, your right hand a lot, you write with your right hand, you um, use the, the trackpad on your laptop a lot with your right hand, you probably tighten up a lot more. So there's a lot of asymmetries here as well. All those things also can translate to your gait cycle. So gate cycle is the biomechanics and um, the hopefully functionality, not lack thereof, of the way that you move through the world. And I think that you learn a lot of that naturally just by moving in the world. But then the, the, last, the, the mastery part of it comes as a part of a craft when you understand that 
the way you walk, the way your foot strikes the ground, even the way you walk. I'm, I'm a parent. I have three kids. I know that the way I walk through the room will set a different kind of charge for my kids. They can tell by the way I walk if I'm frustrated, if I'm impatient, if they should just stay out of my way. It's just the way that I walk. I'm being loud. I don't realize it. I'm in my head. But they can tell because of the way I walk. Pets can tell gait cycle. Pets you know, know when somebody's walking through the house that, that isn't somebody they know, and they'll start growling or barking because of they, they can audio detect the gait cycle. And now technology is starting to be able to pick up on these patterns better than us, better than dogs. Um, listen to your voice and say, oh, you got something going on with your kidneys because of this frequency is missing. So we can reintroduce that frequency to you and maybe that'll fortify you. Technology is getting freaking wild today. We were talking wow. about um, with gait cycle and, and there was something else that made me think of it, but Max Little at Aston University um, found that all of our phones, they have this thing. I forget what the technical name is. It's kind of like a uh, um, gravitron or a gyrometer or something like that, you know, that uh, basically can tell where the phone is oriented to gravity and also mm. can map it over time and space. So he started taking that data and mapping people's gait cycle and noticed that he could, with that algorithm, more accurately detect, and it was just prototype, he can more accurately de detect with a prototype algorithm mapping the patterns of gait cycle if somebody has uh, early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, or if they're prone to it, um, and that, that's just neurodegenerative diseases better than doctors after a half hour interview. So that, that was just a prototype and that's just like, oh, your phone is mapping stuff like that. So as you're walking and some, you know, somebody has their phone in their back, you know, pocket, it's mapping how their hips are moving through time and space. Uh, imagine the surveillance side of that, which is interesting, but also imagine like all that data. Imagine what we're going to pull from that kind of data later. Like, oh, th this means that, you know, th it's weird. Everyone started walking this way two days before or 90 minutes before this comet struck South America or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you know how animals um, can perceive a storm or a tsunami hours or sometimes even like, you know, a day beforehand. I bet you these algorithms might be able to do similar types of things. So I don't know, just some wow. kind of riffing. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with biophotons, but I knew nothing about what you just talked about with the gate cycle. So is that something that you um, like consciously work on improving or is it a subconscious thing that's more, um, you know, clear in hindsight that just informs you about something that's going on in a latent way or like, or, you know, like I said, is that something that you're like trying to improve consciously? That, yeah, it's all of it. Um, like all of those are potential avenues. And I believe that sometimes we're more suited to this avenue than that avenue. But I believe it's a convergence point because um, just walking in nature, I may have a way in my mind of how I'm supposed to like, you know, suck in my core and that straightens my spine and, you know, and I, I walk like, you know, a stiff ass. But as I'm walking through nature, I'll learn things that I didn't know about what proper gait cycle is just by trying to climb that rock right there. Cause it's a, mm -hmm. it's a rock that's a little higher than my hips. And, 
you know, to, for me to crawl over it and then get down from it. They're natural things that I didn't have to train for. You take a, a three-year-old or a two-year-old that's learned to walk already and you kind of, I'm not saying we should do this, but you kind of push them half over. And what do they do? Like they didn't train for this, but their hands go out to counterbalance the exact weight distribution of their fascial matrix. And then they, they balance themselves according to gravity. They know how to utilize this thing in ways that they were never trained to. So there's some kind of surrender to nature and diversity and nuance that I think is really important. Don't try and overthink your gait cycle. Be conscious that you want to improve it. Read up on it if you really want to improve it because it's a corrective exercise. You know, like we actually torque in a, in a fascial pattern up the spine very reliably in one way, um, which makes uh, most people in the Northern Hemisphere seem to have a knot right here in their left hand, but it's in the right hand in the Southern Hemisphere. And I will say that like this, all this information, that specific information is from the Human Garage. If you want to follow them on Instagram, they're incredible. Gary Lineman um, is the one who, who's come up with this. But corrective exercises like walking unwinds what naturally just sitting too long or, you know, injuries, it unwinds the fascia. You have to do like eight miles of it a day. But it's not like you have to sit there thinking, okay, I got to do this with my foot. As you just walk through nuanced terrain, and I would say take your shoes off and go into nature. If that really bugs you, okay, put your shoes back on move on uneven terrain. The more we walk on this, you know, flat terrain where you expect everything, it's going to be yellow if it's a bump because it's a curb or something like that. That's just making it too easy for our mind. So it's dissociating our mind from having to engage with the act of walking because we want to be in the head and think about what she said last night or, you know, we want to be off somewhere mm -hmm. else. But if you can really root yourself in a difficult kind of a hike, where you're climbing over things and maybe even climbing up parts of trees, you're utilizing your fascia in ways that you know that you could, but you didn't realize that when you do it, it actually triggers a, a sequence of neurochemical and hormonal responses throughout the body. You get this kind of a high. Even just with range of motion exercises, people are like, shit, like I feel kind of high just from like getting mobility back in my shoulders. Yeah. That's because consciousness now can live there again, whereas before it was squeezed out. So there's something fascinating right. about gait cycle and improving it. That's, it's, again, it's, it's not saying that like, oh, we should all follow the religion of perfect gait cycle. It's, it's a path. It's not the destination. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a tool because when I say it's corrective, yeah, it's corrective to the body, but what it's also doing is what meditation is. Most people can't meditate for long periods of time, not because they get bored, but actually because they translate boredom, but their body doesn't know how to sit with a straight spine without holding it. And then that pain of holding it for so long starts to relax into asymmetrical posture. And then that becomes, that impinges on our breathing. So like our body is always in pain. Most people's body is in pain. We just don't translate it as pain. If, if you look at somebody complaining about somebody, usually their body, like body is kind of uncomfortable and they're not breathing normally. They don't register all that stuff, but it's real. It's happening. They're not being present with their body. 
So I think the gate cycle thing is really just another way of saying that if we would be more embodied, really just present with what we're actually even feeling in our stomach, in our breathing, in, in the tone of our voice and stuff like that, all the things that we complain about, like, you know, my mind races too much or I ruminate over things, like that's what happens when you're not connected to what's happening in your body and your mind needs to come up with some kind of external antagonist to, to make sense out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So essentially, it sounds like what you're getting at is just like remaining present when you using your body in, um, you know, atypical ways, like on a hike that you're going to be presented with different ways to, to shape your gait, which causes different methods of strengthening the communication, the communicability of your fascia and like it knowing itself better and ways to move things around and whatnot. And you know, what was fascinating me as you're saying that is like, uh, you know, obviously, apparently, based on the other thing you said, like biophotons are one of the means of communicating this information. And to expand on what you were saying regarding biophotons, what a photon is in its, you know, fundamental nature is a single packet of data, a single unit of electromagnetic radiation. And we tend to think of photons when we hear that word as light, and we tend to think of light as the very tiny sliver of the electromagnetic radiation spectrum that we consider visible light. But in fact, light is another word for electromagnetic radiation. A radio wave is light. A Wi-Fi band is light. It's electromagnetic radiation and it carries information. And so it's no surprise that we generate these information packets within our bodies. And it's really interesting how you referred to the fascia as fiber optic because I've never heard of it referred to in that way and it makes all the sense plus some. And, you know, like I said, seeming, seemingly being or serving as the interface between the mind and the body, it, it's, there definitely seems to be a, a two-way communication that can't just be turned on or off. Like I've said in a previous episode, it's, it's an unavoidable linkage system between the body and the mind and most likely the unconscious facets of our mind as well. And as we know, and as you know, DNA itself also both emits and receives uh, biophotons and, you know, what that data is that's being transferred, I really hope that we can zone in on one day. But what we do know for sure right now is that there is a wireless data transfer and sometimes wired and sometimes wireless that's occurring at, at almost all times. And it's interesting because, you know, numerous books, including The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby, talk about the transmission of biophotons as, as it pertains to our ability uh, or, you know, one theory about one of the things that's going on under plant medicine, such as ayahuasca, is that we enter a state in which the holograms or the information being transmitted by these biophotons becomes perceptible to us. And, you know, they posit that perhaps one of the mechanisms of vision is, uh, of the visionary state, rather, is the perceptibility suddenly of these biophotonic transmissions. And that would make sense as it pertains to both biophotons being emitted by DNA itself, but as it pertains also to the pineal gland and its innate receptivity to photons, it possesses the same rods and cones that allow our retinas to perceive visible light. And so it would make all the sense. And obviously it's been referred to throughout the ages of time as a third eye. And, you know, there's a million theories as to as to it being the mediator for visionary states and, and you know, our perceptivity to visions under psychedelics and, and whatnot. And 
as you mentioned in Kymatica, it was discovered in the 90s that one of DNA's primary functions is not just protein th- synthesis and that an aspect of DNA is also electromagnetic signal transmission, which is exactly what we're talking about. And also the connection between the heart and its electromagnetic fields and the brain and its electromagnetic field, which again, electromagnetic field is essentially another word for the transmission of these biophotons and how the heart actually sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart, uh, which is apparently very less known than the other way around, but that these signals exert various influences on perception and emotional states and um, one thing that I've always found fascinating is the whole notion of heart-brain coherence as it pertains to being a function of actual electromagnetic resonance and like meaning the actual resonance of the electromagnetic oscillation frequency of them, of each of them individually, and that field of interaction between those frequencies. And two things I like to think about is how it's not only possible, but likely that the electromagnetic signal generated by the heart is somehow charging our blood with our emotional state and resonance as it pumps blood through our body. And then that blood then enters our organs and the brain, perhaps also modulating the field generated by the brain and other things like how hugs, you hug somebody heart to heart and you place your hearts, which are electromagnetic field generators, as close as possible. They're interacting now with the least possible amount of signal interference, literally. And uh, yeah, I was wondering if you have any other things to add to that pot regarding electromagnetic fields as it pertains to the heart-brain connection or the fascia, because it seems like this is like, it's not just, we're not just, we don't have just one piece of us that's an electromagnetic field generator. And they're communicating as a complex, as a system, as the law of one calls the mind-body-spirit complex, that as a system, each um, you know, different parts generating and playing off of each other's electromagnetic oscillations, which kind of cause like what I assume would be what we call the aura overall would be like the combination mm-hmm. frequency of, of these oscillations. So I was wondering if you have anything to add to that pot of heart brain coherence and, and then we can riff a little bit on DNA because obviously we're both fascinated with that. But yeah, what you got there? Yeah, man, you know, like, What's interesting is like, you know, as you bring that up, I am thinking of not only, let's say, you know, you're with your significant other and your shirts are off and you're chest to chest, your skin is a membrane. It, it drinks in, uh, I mean, like you can put food on your skin and it will eat through it. And it's also intelligent if there is a pathogen in it it has some ability to be able to reject that pathogen. And even like if it if it's in your skin, it can push it back out. Your body rejects earrings and stuff like that. Your skin is very intelligent as well. And there's a lot of receptors on your skin. So when you're with your lover and you, you're chest to chest, not only are your hearts, which are producing that electromagnetic field, communicating in that way, like you're skin to skin, you're, you're like membrane to membrane. It's fascinating that like, you know, there's there's the genitals at the bottom of the spine and then there's the tongue at the top of the spine. And uh, I think I might have have it up here on my bookshelf. It's Franz Barden's um, Initiation into Hermetics. And he has a graph on there that shows the female anatomy and the male anatomy. They have uh, on d- different things, the eyes, the tongue, the tip of the nose, the ears, the genitals, the pecs, the, the nipples, specifically the hands, each finger, 
there's something with different polarities of the electromagnetic charge that reflect themselves through our anatomy. So there's a reason. It's it's not just like, you know, kind of rudimentary that we have five digits on each hand. You know, there's the symmetry between our body and we kind of... Um, uh, you know, almost like lightning. If you see our nervous system all sprawled out, it looks like lightning, same as a root system or something like that. It's these tendrils to go out and receive the environment and receive input from the environment, translated according to whatever it is that a human is. Like there, there's this time-space coordinate thing that a human being is. There's, you know, we weren't born long ago. We're, we were born right now during this time, which maybe we can get into afterwards, is very monumental and momentous part of human history. A lot of things are converging right now. But to stay on point, whatever we are communicating through our heart fields, we communicate in ways, not just language, but I mean, how does a dog know, you know, if you're mad at it? It's not because of the words that you're saying. It can tell by your body language, your posture. You know, like, why do they say never like show your teeth to a dog? Because it's com communication. You know, there's things that babies that never really had any formal training or, uh, or anything as a parent, I've seen this. They understand body language very easily. I can listen to a couple, uh, at a table. If they're speaking a completely different language, I know if they're having a fight, I know if they're just being cute with one another. I know which one feels sorry and which one doesn't. You know, you can tell all these things through the context of, of how the body behaves. We make utterances with our vocal cords, our voice. There's something very, very peculiar about our voice being able to beat air in a way that is distinct to only me. And yours is different than mine. And we all have different voices in these signatures and so just to, to stay on point, there's something that I find super fascinating about the fact that think of now not just sitting heart to heart and hugs, but lovemaking. You are literally entering somebody. And what is that doing? You're creating different electromagnetic orientation. Now two became one, but you have two anatomies that have all these different polarity points on the body. And then you shift those polarities during the act of lovemaking. And I'm sure also with these different positions and stuff, and that might sound super funny to people because the first thing is you think of porn or, you know, but if you think of sacred lovemaking, you know, you, you can go back and find texts and statues of like the reason for the different poses or mm -hmm. uh, positions that you can uh, go into. So there's something about that that I believe is magic. You know, now I say magic is a high science that we just haven't explained yet. Um, I, that's kind of the Arthur C. Clarke, you know, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, magic is really just a high science that we haven't, you know, explained yet. And I really think that lovemaking is, and also Tantra is one of the oldest sciences known to man that we have a uh, written record of. That must come with a huge not just knowledge base, but wisdom around the human anatomy, it's electromagnetic, um, not just function, but like mapping, and then how that maps onto another human. And now take, you know, now let's say you have more people, you add more people into the mix. 
what, what does that do? You know, at the same time as like, why do all ancient cultures, they dance together, but they have very specific dances. They're not just wilding out and, and it's all free expression. Like a lot of our ancient uh, dances actually held their mythology inside the dance and their spine was really erect, even if they were low to the ground, like the Native Americans, they would keep a straight spine, but they would be really crouched down and bouncing around. You're playing with electromagnetic frequencies because you're playing with mm -hmm. the body, and you're doing that on top of the earth under certain astrological signs. There's a science to that, and I don't believe that we need to wait for someone to prove it and have a book and references and links to be able to play with that. Exactly. You know, I think we should be doing ceremony every uh, new moon. And I think we should be doing it as a community. And I don't think it should be dogmatic. I don't think it should be uh, too ordered and too highly structured. But there should be an emergent quality to how it naturally structures itself. And I think that's actually what we're lacking a lot of today is we, we organize our mind based upon uh, a game theory economic system, what we're allowed to do, what we have time to do. You know, go out and try and do new moon uh, ceremonies now, you know, you'll be looked at as, you know, some kind of like cult leader or something like that. It's wild that we've come that far, that if you want to connect with your indigenous roots and just get together with, uh, you know, your fellow people and dance and do something around a fire that that's starting to look weird to people. Mm -hmm. I digress, but you know, that, that's how I riff off what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lot of what you just said is, is really fascinating and super on point. And I, I think, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the, the electromagnetic system as it pertains to the body and lovemaking and stuff. I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's not Tantra, but it's a Taoist sexual philosophy book called The Multi-Orgasmic Man. And it talks very deeply about how to move. To yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great book. And, and it talks a lot about how to move this energy and this literally this electromagnetic energy that you're building up as you build your sexual arousal and your sexual energy, how to move it to other places in the body and experience different sensations elsewhere. And to do so, it references, which again, as you were saying, it's difficult for the Western mind to want to believe these things, even though this knowledge is thousands and thousands of years old as to, as society, especially here in the West, developed and diverged from Eastern mysticism and Eastern philosophies that far predate Western civilization, we began to seek such a different framework of proof for things that we just immediately tend to shun these things simply because we don't understand them in the way that we like to understand things. And you know, as I've said many times, like I myself have a very strong skeptic and and am always kind of battling the mystic and the scientists in the forefront of my awareness. But some of these philosophies are, are so beyond detailed and wise in their nature and have such a deep understanding of human anatomy as it pertains to the energetic side of things and the understanding of this electromagnetic circuitry that exists within us that it's like, okay, when you really dedicate and start reading some of these tantric and, and, um, Taoist philosophies, it's like, wow. And we're back. So obviously the technology overlords were unpleased with the truths being spoken. So we were disconnected, but here we are again. So we're going to try to pick up where we left off kind of. So one of the things that came up with what you were saying before we got cut off, speaking of kind of not having the proof that we tend to seek, but knowing that there's something there specifically in regards to 
the importance being placed on certain things uh, for thousands of years by ancient cultures. One of the things that I really like to nerd out on is the procession of the equinox, also known as the procession of the zodiac or the zodiacal ages, which is actually quite literally a larger cycle of time as measured by the actual movement pattern of the planet Earth itself. And so for anybody who's not familiar, the Earth sits on an axis, you know, and it rotates. Obviously, that's what gives us a day. It spirals around the sun, not in the static solar system model that we've always kind of been visually taught as children, but more of an actual spiral as the sun is spiraling around the galaxy. But also the axis of the Earth has a very slow wobble to it like this. And that wobble completes one full revolution or one full cycle every 25,920 years. So we get the zodiacal age that we're in by if you stand anywhere on the planet on the vernal equinox and you look due east at sunrise, the sun rises into a specific constellation. Hence, for the last about 2,000, 2,100 years, that constellation has been Pisces. So we call this the age of Pisces, da-da-da. And ancient cultures have placed a huge importance on measuring this cycle. Some of them seem to be using it as a timepiece, perhaps to let future cultures know, or to, to set a monolith or something as a timepiece to let future cultures know when it was built, etc. And it's interesting, because the math of this cycle of time is actually why I tune much of my music to a equals 432 hertz. A lot of people think that that's like some woo-woo concept with no basis in reality. But in fact, the number 432 is in perfect resonance with all of the numbers that sync up with this period of time, this 25,920-year um, wobble of the Earth's axis. A quick example, if you picture like a, a, a diagram of octaves, right, like with a sine wave on top, and then if you cut that sine wave in two, which is an octave higher, you're doubling the frequency um, and you continuously do that. When you plug these numbers in, they're all in resonance. For example, 25,920, which is the amount of years that it takes to complete this procession, is in perfect resonance with the number 432. 25,920 divided by 60 is 432, which means that if you take, because hertz in frequency represents the cycles of sound waves per second, so 432 hertz means that the crest of a wave passes any point 432 times in one second. If you multiply that by 60, you get one minute. And that means that the crest of that wave has just crossed any point 25,920 times in that minute. So what I'm saying is that that frequency is literally in resonance with the passage of time in multiple measurements of time itself. So it makes a lot more sense to me. And I don't know exactly what kind of crazy effect that might have by tuning your music that way. But it does make a lot more logical sense to me that that would be a tuning to use in music because it's in resonance with actual passage of time. And music is the decoration of time. So it's a lot, there, there's a lot there. And I was just curious, like what you had or, or what research you've done in regards to the procession of the equinox or the importance placed on those zodiacal ages. It's been a large facet of a lot of calendrical work done by various cultures and uh, just really been given recognition. So I was curious what you had there. <clears throat> yeah, man, you know, my my research of the procession of the equinoxes goes back maybe 10 to 15 years um, I've kind of deviated from the nuances, but as you were speaking there, it really just kind of made sense 
as you're speaking about how the 432 fits into that procession of the equinox as a fractal. So you're a music producer. You know that when you're making music, you're sitting there listening to something that like, let's say you programmed with MIDI. So it is on the metronome. It is, it is precise. But then you played an instrument on top of it. And maybe you played another instrument on top of it. And you're listening through and you're like, wait a minute, right there. And you stop it. There's something off. And it takes you a while to even identify what is it that's off? Which one is off? And I think the, the analogy that I'm striving for here is that our ears can detect these very, very minuscule uh, imprecisions in music and things along those lines. And the interesting thing is you, you play guitar, I would imagine. I've seen you played, mm -hmm. uh, what is it, a kora or a, um, you know, an African? And, and goni. Yeah, but I play guitar too. Okay. And you have to tune that thing, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So imagine playing on it and playing on it and playing on it, but never knowing what to actually tune it back to. Right. So there's something about 432 as you're putting that in your music, or let's say the the inverse when it was changed to 440, uh, it was that Victorian era. Um, as it was changed to 440, that's slightly off, just slightly off, but it's no longer a true fractal. Um, it's representing a, a slightly longer timeline. And so so I'm gonna try and organize my thoughts here because the interesting thing is is like when it comes to time and calendars and our understanding of time, uh, a lot of it is based on the human experience as well. Now we have metronomes and things that we have an external reference for it. But the reason I'm saying this is like we were just talking about the indigenous dances and how they would keep their spine very erect. So it's, it's you know, from the earth to the heavens. Um, they're not in terrible posture. So it's opening up all those... Um, you know, dorsal electromagnetic vortices that align alongside the spinal column, which is an electromagnetic, um, what do you call it, like a solenoid, if you will. And so as we're pumping all this fluid and chemicals and electromagnetic charge, primarily through the spine, you have these, the, the what would be called the chakra centers, but they're electromagnetic vortices, which is really fascinating. So in the indigenous dances, they would do a lot of dances that are not just within the dance themselves, their movements are mapping the cosmos, but at the same time, they would do it under specific astrological signs or, um, you know, during the new moon or full moon. And they would do that for a purpose. And a lot of people like would just stop there. I don't know why. And for me, I always wanted to know like, but, but what, was that doing? Why would they do it on this part of the earth under this sign and that specific dance that maps out this part of their astrological uh, or cosmic mythos? And where I've gotten to is it's like tuning. We're tuning back to nature. So if you have too many positive ions in your body because you're te touching technology all the time, there is actual now... Um, studies showing that going out and standing barefoot on the earth or getting into some water, it the earth is a negative ion repository. So it's moving some of those positive ions out. It's charging, you're kind of tuning back to the natural frequencies. So then we can go back into our houses where we're disconnected from nature, largely, we're touching electronics, which are working on different frequency spectrums. And there's there's something about that the procession of the equinoxes 
it has been the pattern or the you know the wave pattern that has been not just for our species but any if if evolution is what you know what they say it is and we have um what is that earliest common ancestor um we all and including the the rocks and the crystals we all have been charged by that frequency and so there is a tuning to that frequency. And that's why I like that the, the 432 thing. I think I even put that in Chimatica I was speaking briefly about. But there is something about that that also, when we're talking about cosmos, I don't know if you know about the seven liberal arts, but there's grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And this goes back all the way to ancient Greece. So, and, and this is interesting, maybe at some point, so I don't tangent too hard, I can get into how this all evolved through thousands of years, through our language, eventually into the large language model AIs that we have today. Um, but there's grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and that's the trivium. And then the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, um, music, and dance, or music and cosmos. So arithmetic is just the, you know, um, the work with numbers. Geometry is numbers across space. Music is numbers across time and cosmos is numbers across time and space. So there's something mm -hmm. about that, that when we're talking about the movement of the cosmos, now, you know, you know, you have the sun in the middle and everyone thinks there's, you know, this is what it's like. All these planets are just moving around it in concentric circles, but then now throw that sun and imagine all those planets are trailing behind it in this spiraling corkscrew fashion, like the DNA behind you then there's something about that pattern and all the mathematical equations of how long it takes each one to orbit and, um, and just create a, uh, a single rotation of the planet itself. And then you're talking about the larger patterns of time of the processions of the equinox, like as, as not just the wobble is completing its 25,920 year cycle, but also going around the galaxy. It's um, mm -hmm. patterns nested within patterns nested within patterns to exactly. the point where we can pick up on it. We just don't have the langu language and we haven't become sophisticated enough to be able to connect our intellect back with that. That's what our body is for. And that's why I think our myofascia is intelligent. Our heart has neurology. Our gut has neurology. And they're probably simpler algorithms to use a technical term than the brain. The brain is running simulations. The heart is the one that really knows, is this good for me? Is this not good for me? Should I say yes to this or should I say no to this? And the gut is also, the, the neurology in the gut is there. It's producing all the feel-good chemicals. It's there also to maintain this temple and eat of the, you know, eat of the earth so we are of the earth. So all the plants and stuff, they're baking in the sun. They're um, catching all the same patterns of the cosmos that we are as well. And we eat of that. We put it in our own digestive tract. And we have soil and microbes in our gut, just like out in the soil out there. And so we are, in a sense, a microcosm of the earth. And this is why I believe, to bring it full circle, the indigenous, they would dance barefoot on the earth. They would um mimic the um the cosmos and they their chants 
in their language, their, their chanting and their mantra and the drums that they would use would be there to help them kind of align and attune back with the earth. And they weren't working off of metronomes. They were working off their collective conception and perception of how fast the rhythm should be when mm. it should speed up, when it should slow down. Almost like in ayahuasca ceremonies, the, you know, um, the curandero, the shaman, uh, the maestro, they are listening, not just with their ears, but they're listening to the moment to know when they should launch into which Icaro. So there's something about that. Our music is, is, is like a, a mapping of those cosmos that when we sing it out, other people can tune themselves to us being mm. in contact with that cosmic cycle as well. That's kind of where I've come to with how important these patterns and these frequencies are. And I'll just end with this. Selen Atasoy, I went to the MAPS conference back in 2017. Selen Atasoy worked in Munich and also at the Imperial College London. She has this uh, study called the Connectome Brain Harmonics. And she was basically studying different brain waves within the brain that they're not sending data, they're not computing anything, they're coming into harmony like a symphony with one another. And this has led her to say, I believe our brains and really our whole being operates more like a symphony than it does a computer. It's not doing mm -hmm. random calculations in the way that we would think. It's coming into harmony, it's looking for middle ground, it's looking to complement with you know uh, overtones and undertones what the rest of the brain is doing. And for some reason, LSD, um, opens up that repertoire to more diversity of um, frequencies. And this is what I wanted to land on. Selen Atasoy said, I think the future of medicine is frequency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. And I appreciated a lot what you said regarding the patterns within patterns within patterns, because that's what I was trying to get at when I'm like, look, I don't understand exactly. And, and I have no evidentiary argument for like what the, specifically this may be doing. But logically, it makes all of the sense because it is in resonance with the actual spiraling of the rock that we're hurling through space on the way that it moves, the way that it rotates, the rate at which it does these things. So it's like, and as you were saying, our ears are very attuned to pick up on very minute dif differences or, um, you know, frequency adjustments and things. And it's interesting because other cultures also place an importance on that number in particular. If you're unfamiliar, the Great Pyramid at Giza, if you measure its base perimeter in any unit of measurement and you multiply it by 43,200, you get the equatorial perimeter of the earth in that unit of measurement. And if you measure from the base of where the capstone would have been down, uh, I mean, from the base up to where the capstone would have been in any unit of measurement, multiply it by 43,200, you get the radial diameter of the earth in that unit of measurement. So it's like, that's most certainly not an accident. Yeah. And it's like, what, what was trying to be communicated there? Uh, that's obviously something to do with the resonance of the movement of the planet, right? So it, it's there's there's so much there, and you know a lot of about the procession of the equinox. A lot seems to be alluded towards that each zodiacal age, which each age, because you're taking twenty five thousand nine hundred twenty, you're dividing it by twelve, so each age lasts two thousand one hundred sixty years. It's thirty degrees of movement in that in that axial wobble, and um, so. Basically, other cultures have attributed each age to carry along with them 
a certain kind of level of awareness or phase of consciousness, right? And so we're moving into the age of Aquarius, which is said to be like the age pertaining to informational complexity and informational connection, which obviously the internet was a massive um, paradigm shifting attunement of the collective society uh, as as we begin to move into that age. So that's not really a surprise there. But um, yeah, there's just there's so much there. And I appreciated a lot of, of everything that you said. And another thing to note, too, is like, in regards to music production, and, and the sensitivity of our ears that I've always found really interesting is like, as it pertains to imperfection, grabbing our attention is like, even uh, what, the term that we call groove in music production or in music in general refers to humanization or the intentional, the intentional off timing of things. Like when you listen to quantizing. something and when you, when you exactly, when you listen to quantized, well, it's, groove is the opposite of quantizing. So if yeah, you listen yeah. to quantized music where things are smacked onto a computer grid and it, everything's in perfect timing, there's no life in it. So like yeah. as music producers who are working in digital workstations, we use Groove as a tool to literally create formulated imperfections in things yeah. or we just minutely slide stuff manually to where it's not perfect because that's what breathes life into things. So when you're listening to live drumming and stuff like you were talking about at these ceremonies and dance rituals, like th they're always never on time, like right. perfectly. And that's what breathes life into these things. And it's interesting, you were talking about brainwaves, because a lot of shamanic drumming is played at tempos that uh, elicits theta brainwaves, which are obviously associated with deep meditative, but alert trances, and dance and whatnot. So um, another thing that popped up to me whenever you were on that riff was, uh, you know, the electromagnetic waves being viewed more as a symphony in, in, in the mind, body, spirit. And it's interesting because I love the analogy of thinking being electric and knowing being magnetic. So whenever you're kind of, whenever your, your neurons are firing electronically and operating as that computer, that kind of describes the function of thinking, whereas these oscillations where they're kind of more wirelessly communicating, it seems, as a symphony, as an all-at-one kind of situation rather than following specific axonal pathways and shit, you know, like that that's like the, the amalgamation of all of that thinking held within one field instead of one locality within the brain, you know what I mean? So in an electromagnetic wave, which is what is you know, oscillating to create these brainwave states is the combination or the symphony of those two modes of, of information, transfer information storage. You, you know what I mean? That dude, that's wild. Um, for one, uh, when you were saying groove, it came to me that in drumming, cause I started with drumming, they, they call it swing, you know, it has that yeah. more like human swing to it. And um, the zodiac signs could be seen like all of them together as like a, a 12 or 13, depending on if you believe in that, you know, 13th sign. Um, it's basically an album with different songs on it that are meant to put you into different kinds of trances. And then it cycles back in on itself like it'll be put on repeat. But I don't think history truly repeats. I think it rhymes. You know, so it comes mm -hmm. close, but it's the same thing as a spiral. It looks like you're coming back to the same spot, but not quite. And that's exactly, exactly. what we're doing, hurtling through the cosmos. Um, <clears throat> but that's super fascinating. And um, when you said thinking electric and knowing magnetic, it makes me think of neurology because electric is excitation, 
and there could be data in impregnated in that. So like there's excitation, there's data, but what's magnetic gives it a specific trajectory to move towards, right? So there's data, but data in motion. And this also gets back to the quadrivium that I was talking about, arithmetic, geometry, music, and cosmos. There's something about the pattern in it. This is why I love filmmaking is because I feel like everything revolves around story. So um, there, there really isn't much of a distinction between many of the arts and story, whether it's painting, it could be a dance, it could be a movie, it could be a song, uh, it could be a song without lyrics, um, but there's story in it. It moves in a way that makes sense to us. And it doesn't have to make sense, like not every one of our favorite songs can we really even explain what, about, what we even got from it. Some are just like, yeah, man, it was just, it had that, that thing, that X factor. And that's almost a failure of language to understand. There's a story that it's telling that we haven't even dawned, or it hasn't dawned on us yet, that this is a part of our deeper subconscious or unconscious architecture. It's there. We feel it. We feel its presence. We know when we watch a movie, when something is off, when something that was set up was never paid off at the end. And there's like a writing error the, you know, whoever wrote the script, they errored and nobody caught it the entire way through. And it's the audience sitting back like, huh, that's not because they study film. That's because it's a part of who we are. And it's like story is really beautiful because it's really interesting that story always has a character, which is an archetype, which is something that we can see ourselves as. And they always have to be thrown into a world where they're in, at the beginning, they're in this like normal world, and then they're thrown into a new normal. And that new normal has different rules and somebody else is in charge. So like for Frodo, he was in the Shire, it was just, you know, make sure you have enough food to survive and enjoy yourself. And then all of a sudden this ring comes along. And now his world is, you have to go across the world and there are some dangers and you have to find the most dangerous place. You need to go to the heart of it and you need to dispose of this ring. Oh, by the way, you're going to come across so much resistance, you may not survive. That's like, you know, this, this person, Frodo, is like, what the hell? Like, I, I'm just a little person. And Gandalf is like, no, you know, some of the greatest things can come from the, the, you know, the smallest people. And that is the story. That's the real story. This person who didn't think they could, the reluctant hero, is thrust onto a journey they didn't think they could, ple could complete. But then they had support and they had to dig deep to find that they actually did have the gifts that they needed to, and the skills to make it through. And that's life. That is the story of life. We face adversity and it's only because we're facing the adversity that we have to dig deeper to actually find that we know how to solve this problem. And the beauty of that is like, you know, as a filmmaker, I, it's all about a good story well told. It can't just be a good story. Like you've heard somebody play a song, you know, on an acoustic before. I know you probably have. And they're trying to play this awesome song, but they're fucking it up. They're not singing it right. They're forgetting lyrics because they're trying to focus on, you know what I mean? Like that's a good story, but it wasn't well told. So that's the thing about story is also we are, as a, as a filmmaker, you as a musician and also a podcaster, it's all about remembering that this is inside us. 
what we're really trying to do is reconnect back, retune back to the story and the song that's always been playing inside us. In fact, it's been playing inside all our ancestors. And I came out of my mom, right? I was connected to her. I was a part of her. I came out of her. I had to develop in her care. And then I went off into the world. I now have a wife. My kids came out of my wife. It's this really strange evolution of my influence passes on to my kids with her genes. We come into contact. They have offspring. They go off into their own journeys, have their own stories. But really, all of us are experiencing variations of the same stories. And you go back to Shakespeare, there's only a certain amount of stories that you can actually seemingly tell. Like, you know, you can tell them in very different ways, but there are like certain templates of stories that you look at Hollywood today, any uh, literature, it's the same stories being told over and over again, just with different characters. Uh, now it's like, you know, it was Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's two people that couldn't get together. And now it's like a lover that's on Mars and, a, you know, the other lovers on, you know, Earth, and they're speaking through the technology. But in many ways, it's the world thrusting these people apart, and they're desperately trying to come back together. There's something about these stories that when you dive deeply into them, I hate to say the word formula, but it's the closest thing you could surmise to an actual formula that shows there is an archetypal framework to the the patterns of adversity and triumph that we'll experience in this world. Right. Yeah. And whenever you're, whenever you're talking about these stories, it brings up something I wanted to talk about with you as well about, you know, the, the, the kind of subconscious mind, which as we know is what's truly driving our ships. And this is something I talked about numerous times on here before. And I like to speak with people who are experienced with ayahuasca. But as I've mentioned, ayahuasca is always a really genetic experience for me. And I have the undeniable experience that I'm directly interfacing with both the coding and the non coding portions of my genome. And it always occurs to me as I'm like consciously bridging that gap and interfacing with this genetic material and literally consciously making edits to it that the non-coding portion of my genome is literally the language of my unconscious operating system, predispositions, responses to trauma, in other words, stories like or, and stories and the resulting code that they have codified based on my reactions to them. And I'm curious if you have had similar genetic based experiences with ayahuasca. Yeah, man, it's it's cool to hear you say it like that because um, I definitely have. I've had similar experiences on a boga. Um, on a boga, it's more on the nose, and that's that's another story or or script writing term. On the nose means like there's it's not wrapped in allegory. It's pretty direct. Um, it's like you know you have the lead character come into a room and then slam a cup on the, the coffee table, sit down all angrily, and then say, "I'm mad." Like, okay, dude, we got it. You like, so that's on the nose. And Iboga was quite on the nose with this genetic thing, because it actually felt like I was standing in front of my um, uh, gene sequencing, being able to make almost very binary decisions of like, this stays, this goes. But mm -hmm. there was something real in my contextual past, a story that was connected to each one of these augmentations that I was making. So there's something very interesting about like story is a lot of the things we think that aren't possible for ourselves personally are stories that we've told ourselves. And exactly. in many ways, 
if we're in the right open mind and a trustworthy person, I don't know, breaks it down in a new way and says, no, dude, I don't know if you, you know about this, but bam, 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 bam. And all of a sudden, just that information, we haven't done anything but receive the information. We haven't embodied it, nothing. We just receive the information, but it clicks. And in those ways, even outside of ayahuasca, I've felt almost an entire body buzz. And I, at least in those moments, I think like, was there like a global, like a holistic genetic shift or maybe an epigenetic shift, something that's like more on top of the genome? Um, because we know there's, you know, one thing that affects our genetic expression is our environment that we're in. So this is another reason why like we like to play music while we're cleaning up or, you know, during ceremony, it's creating an environment by which we can attune. And I think one thing that does attune is our genetics. And I can't remember if I was telling now, I mean, the first part of the podcast was um, a little bit ago, and I can't remember if I said this in the podcast or right beforehand, but Alan and Iona Miller in the 90s were doing studies on um, not just the genome, they're doing studies on seemingly information that comes through our DNA. And they said the only way that they could understand how it's pulling this information that seems non-local is by understanding there are what they term black holes or wormholes inside of the gene structure. Um, Nassim Harriman says we have them at the center of every atom at the center of our heart but that those wormholes are drawing information from outside space-time. So we are the manifest and we're drawing information from the non-manifest. Um, and, and that is something that also informs us in a vibratory way. And I've had it on ayahuasca mm -hmm. before where the, there's just this notion, this thing that comes over me. And yes, it's connected to my past. It's connected to the stories that I've told myself but maybe, maybe to be more specific, there was this, you know, one story of I have children and sometimes when I'm impatient, the way that I speak with my children is impregnated, not just the context of the words and the language, but the tonality that I give to it is, is so uh, abrupt that it becomes a very harsh way of communicating to my kids. And I, I notice it not as I'm saying it, but as it bounces off of them in a facial expression and comes back to me. So it's like, I translate my frustration in one way, they translate it in a more visual, non-auditory way. And within a second, I feel a global shift inside me. And I can't say that all of this is genetic based, but what I can say is when there are those aha epiphany moments, you can map that to gamma bursts um, of brainwaves, these short mm -hmm. bursts that are like aha moments. And there's something that happens globally around the body. So it's either that the DNA is transmitting that throughout the entire body and it gives you this kind of like, I don't know, buzz or a sinking feeling in your gut when you get terrible news. Like what, what are these things and how does it happen globally so instantly? Is it just electromagnetic? Um, is there something that is really like a choice point. It's a turning point of no return that's actually coming through your DNA as well. On ayahuasca, I feel like 
you get so much closer to those moments where you're aware mm -hmm. that not just the things you've done in your past, but how you hold it now. You're thinking back on it. You're recalling it, which is an interesting thing that we can do. We can recall this information and then relive this moment and mm -hmm. augment and, and hash, you know, past like, what could I have done better? You know, where did it, where did the problem actually start? Was it that I didn't take a breath first and then speak to my child? There's mm -hmm. certain little things that happen that like, once they dawn on you fully, I, uh, me fully, I should say, I feel it holistically. And from there on out, every single time an opportunity comes where I could either go regress back into the old pattern or step into the new pattern, it's just right there. It's recall is right there. And that's why I think that ayahuasca, iboga, mushrooms, all the serotonergics, I think they really have something to do with the evolution of our DNA. I wouldn't go so far as to saying I absolutely believe that, you know, the, the stoned ape theory, I think there's merit to it, but I, I feel like there may be more to that story that, you know, our ancestors took mushrooms and all of a sudden developed language. Um, but I wouldn't say that's untrue. And there's something about that that I think is, is kind of almost evolutionarily from all our ancestors. I felt that I've shut off a pattern of my ancestors in ayahuasca ceremonies dozens of times. I've done ayahuasca over a hundred times, but there are choice points where I'm like, that pattern ends with me. And I know so many people who've said that exact thing, like that trauma, that pattern, that thing that my parents did and their parents probably did and on and on and on. We don't know how far back that actually goes. That pattern stops with me. 100%. And, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I experienced that in the fucking Maloka with you, a couple of people away from me. And it was one of the most pivotal moments of my life and the greatest purge I've ever experienced in ayahuasca. And, and I've done it a, a, a lot as well. And it's interesting because that particular ceremony that I'm talking about, where I definitely, most definitely ended a very thick piece of generational trauma, that was the first time that I understood all of this, this kind of genetic story that was playing out right in front of me. And it's interesting when I'm talking about interfacing with my genome, and I'm curious if this is like your experience when you're having those felt senses that that's what's happening. So every time I've had this experience, I see and experience visually this ge genetic material to kind of present itself as a multi-stable perception. Like if you picture the images, like the optical illusion of it, whether it's either two faces facing each other or it's a vase and it's depending on kind of there, nothing changes in the image. You, it's just a, a flip switch in perspective that shows you what you're looking at. I'll be seeing this imagery and if you kind of focus your eyes or zoom out on it, it's really, really interesting. And all of a sudden it's like very clearly genetic material linking and unlatching and interlinking and it's moving in accordance with my thought processes. And that night in the Maloka was the first time that I realized beyond the shadow of a doubt that this particular chapter of this book that is my non-coding DNA was carrying a story, multiple stories and distortions that I directly genetically inherited that were not the result of something that I myself directly experienced. But then they showed me the ways in which I was raised in the behaviors by some family members that were the that were a direct trauma response. And then how that 
those kind of behaviors kind of concreted the inheritance of that story and made me adopt that story as my own, even though, even though originally this was inherited genetic material that was the underlying subconscious programming that directly resulted from my family members trauma response to something that they directly inherited. So it's really trippy. It was the first time I had directly like for sure experienced that. And when I purged and when I left it in the bucket, I it was also the first time I directly experienced the sensation I had heard of from other people talking about like purging for your whole family. It was yeah. really, really, really crazy and a, and a huge shift. But um, yeah, I mean, I figured that you had that you had probably had had some of that in your ayahuasca experiences and it's interesting like going back to the biophoton conversation from earlier in this podcast uh what jeremy narby talks about in the cosmic serpent are really just posits is that some of the the light the biophotons emitted by dna because we know that dna itself emits light and it emits coherent light it's not scattered light so the light that it emits yeah. is is are coherent and in phase meaning it's much closer to a laser than a light as we would per, per, you know generally picture a light and what he posits is that our ability to get into these visionary states might be a switch in perceptivity and an ability to perceive the light that's being emitted by our DNA. So if that were true, it would make a fuck ton of sense as to why we're having these genetic based experiences that also function as a multi stable perception. It's like DNA being a projector of the story that it's encoded with projecting it via photons that then can be received, whether it's by our pineal gland or whatever it is that's, you know, in eliciting that true visionary experience, but the light being emitted by the DNA, being able to be directly perceived, witnessed and like watched like a movie, which is exactly what's happening under ayahuasca. Dude, <clears throat> this is blowing my mind because like, it's starting to make sense of why I'm so fascinated with fascia. Because now mm -hmm. think of a projector, you know, so even your focus is like either a laser beam or it's scattered like a flashlight, mm -hmm. but picking up off of what you were just saying there. So a projector will project something onto like a two dimensional screen and it'll, it'll give us something to watch. And when we're watching something, our mirror neurons are relating to what's happening on the screen so we can live the experience. Another way may be the fact that uh, I was talking about how your myofascial system is set up like a fiber optic, um, three dimensional, I didn't say projector, but now I'm going to say projector because it's it's being projected from somewhere, maybe outside space time, maybe from our, our lineage into our body as a lived experience, you know, so we're having the thought it's mine, we think it's ours, we think it's just something that's coming across our feed. And maybe we think it's random and it has no meaning to it in its order. And the in the reason it came up, oh, it's just it it means nothing. Don't don't worry about it. We do too much of that. But there's something about that that's really, really fascinating because as these experiences, these data packets, these biophotons, they enter us, they enter our, you know, fiber optic system. So it's shared globally at light speed throughout the entire body, and we act it out, we behave it out. And we turn it into behaviors. And there's something, you know, I, I know a lot of people who go through ayahuasca and they're trying to resolve trauma from the past. 
uh, myself included, you just wonder like, why can't in one night, can I just get rid of all my fucking shit, all my baggage? And I think it's, it goes back to when I was talking about story. You can tell when you're watching a movie and something that was set up in the beginning was never paid off in the end. There's something about that that makes you know, like, yeah, but whatever happened to that one dude? Or why, why did they make so much of a deal about this guy handing that person a key? He, d- he never used the key. This happened in Game of Thrones. There were a couple things that I was like so mad that I feel like they raced the ending and they forgot to tie up loose ends. Mm-hmm. And that seems like karma. You know, karma is us, like the reason why we can't just get rid of it all in a single night is because we actually have to behave it out. There's a way to dance or behave to tie up loose ends. And if those loose ends didn't start with us, it would be cheap, you know, it would be a very cheap way of getting over it to just like snap your finger and then all that baggage is gone. Like like the promise of future technology. Oh, one day we'll be able to just plant electrodes in your brain and take get rid of all your trauma. And I'm thinking, no, nah, because even if you were able to do that, you wouldn't be the same human mm. afterwards. You wouldn't be the same being. So there's something super fascinating about that. I don't, I don't know how to riff on it further, but uh, you know, we are like our own projector screen. And exactly. it projects into us and other people get to see us, a three-dimensional anatomical projector screen acting out whatever information has come through our DNA, through our ancestry, it's fascinating because the, the more and more you think you can figure out what it is to be alive, what it is to be human, the more you start piecing it together and you're like, this is a fucking new paradigm. Now I'm the fool. I'm at, I'm at the beginning. I'm not at the end of understanding. I'm at the very beginning of understanding. Now I have tons of questions again. Right. Yeah. And that brings me to something else I wanted to talk to you about. And it's interesting because it's like, this one's like unrelated to our genome. Well, actually, before I go there, I'll I'll stick here too, because this one is kind of related to our genome and our stories and and the information that's contained within this and and mixing it with somebody else. I was watching a podcast with Dr. Jack Cruz the other day, who's a surgeon. He was telling this insane story about this heart transplant patient who all of a sudden kept coming to him and reporting that she's having these crazy cravings for McDonald's French fries only after her heart transplant. And through all the like HIPAA laws and stuff, this was totally unknown to her. But Dr. Cruz was saying that the child donor who donated her heart was literally killed in a McDonald's drive through they were hit in a car while literally eating McDonald's French fries, which they found scattered all over the seat at the site of the accident. And, you know, he was he was positing that he thinks that it might have something to do. He's not really sure, but he was saying he thinks it might have something to do with like the quantum coherence and information stored within the water of the heart. But, you know, based on this conversation, it's like, what's the likelihood that this information was somehow stored in the DNA in the cells within that transplanted heart or or something in that nature. It's just fascinating for me to think about. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories about like heart transplants and things along those lines and people having memories. Um, There have even been movies that have talked about this. It's a phenomenon that's happened Mm -hmm. quite often. Um, I don't know how I would verify quite often, but often enough to make movies about it and write, write books about it. Um, But the heart, like I was saying before, has very simple neurology to it, but it's neurology nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And you take it out of one person who has their own confluence of karma. And 
again, we may think this is just random, but it goes to this other person who happens to need it at the same time. Oh, completely disconnected. Sure. You know, but it, it's quite wild to feel that this person would need a heart, gets a heart from somebody else who has their own karma, but their lives were cut short in some way. Maybe that's not by mistake either. Um, and now it's this person's, I would even say there might be some karma transfer there. There's something that this person, well, I got, I, I have this craving for, which cravings usually, they don't come from a heart, they come from the gut, you know, our own microbiome, they tell us what we're hungry for, they tell us like, oh, you see chocolate, we need chocolate, give me chocolate. Um, but French fries, McDonald's French fries, it almost seems like whatever that person that was killed had as far as karma or something still needs to tie up that loose end of the story. And that's why this person now has this impulse. There's something compelling this person to go and get McDonald's French fries, maybe even do it through the drive-thru. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But it's just, I mean, like, we can keep riffing into infinity, but what's fascinating about this is it really does show you that the more we learn, the more we, we just realize we're in our infancy of what we actually know, what it means to be a human. And then all of a sudden, we're at this time in history where we're not giving up what it means to be human, but we're putting that through a very rigorous test when it comes to the outsourcing, not just of our jobs, but the outsourcing of how we come to understand things by just having algorithms take all of human language and predict the next word and give us certain amount of characters and feed that back to us. There's something about that that is, is just, it's fascinating. It's almost like civilization-wide karma. And we're mm -hmm. being put through a test, much like Frodo was put through that test, but we're being put through this test. Okay, you've, you've been human for long enough. It's been hundreds of thousands of years and you just stopped wandering like, you know, uh, hunter-gatherers. And then once we stopped wandering, we took nature, we planted a seed, and we're like, here, this is where we're going to bring nature to us. But now that we have this surplus of food and we consider a surplus of the same thing, wealth, that we couldn't ever carry on our back before, so that was never wealth, it would just rot. Now we have to protect it. Now we have diversity of people and different tribes that have never been together. So now we need laws. And it's this start of all this civilization, which is dependent upon language that got us to this point. And now we're outsourcing that again. So like, what does it mean to be human in an era where we're outsourcing most of the things that we had to utilize, the faculties and functions of human cognition all the way up to this point? Now we're outsourcing it, liberating us for what? What kind of tasks? You know, possibly that's a karmic shift in the species. That's interesting because at some point in this conversation, I wanted to talk to you and about GPT and other large multimodal language models like that. And what are some of the pros and cons you've been able to perceive? But what you just said really interested me regarding how that in and of itself kind of is a reflection of our collective karma because all of the language and parameters that this algorithm is trained on and it's trillions now for GPT-4 Mm -hmm. is is the direct result our output is the input for the algorithm it, it's training material so it's like in a very direct sense it is karma <laughs> reflecting itself i never thought about it like that but what are where are you at right now on, on the gpt thing 
I think it's super fascinating. Um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, a lot of people totally. think because I'm talking about it so much lately that I'm just infatuated and in, lo in love with it. And I am, but that doesn't mean I don't see this is a very weird choice point for humanity. Um, there, there's a couple things I want to throw out there that it's what I like about language models is it's I, I can map it now to all of human history. So all the rest of the AIs, I really, I knew that you train it, it learns a task, it learns how to computate it faster and without error. And a lot of people are like, well, GPT, it hallucinates, it'll, it'll straight up lie to you. And my thoughts are, I was just listening to uh, Stephen Wolfram on Lex Friedman. And he was saying, well, it, you know, I don't think it lies. I don't think it gets anything wrong. This was it's, it's something that you can ask it to tell you a story that's not true. It can do that, and it can sound very human. You could say, you know, um, you know, write me a story about how history would have gone if Hitler was never born or something like that, and it'll tell you a story. It's not factual. So when we're sitting here saying these things are lying or it's hallucinating and it just doesn't know, it's computing and it's predicting what it thinks we want, and it can only give us a, an answer consequent to how well we form our prompt. So for anyone who doesn't fully understand, the prompt is your question. You're going to prompt it with something. That's super interesting because like, once you prompt it and it spits something out and you're like, huh, that's not really right, you could ask it, are you correct about that point? And it'll say, no, it'll go back in and check. But once it spits something out, it, it does it like stream of consciousness, but it can go back and reflect on itself if you prompt it. And that's the mm -hmm. same thing as human language here. So there's something interesting about why do language model AIs perform chemistry better than AIs that were trained specifically for chemistry? Why is it picking up on things that nobody knew it could have? Like you're training it only on English and you're training it, training it, training it, training it, and then all of a sudden, it learns Persian right. out of the blue. Like, why did it just learn Persian there? Possibly because our languages, in, in much like, you know, if we have a common ancestor, our language has a common origin point. And maybe this was in the Bible about the Tower of Babel. You know, like, we have this common ancestry point. If you read language, it lights up only in your left hemisphere primarily on, only in the left hemisphere. There's like, you know, several, I think three um, spots of the left hemisphere that light up when you're reading written human natural language. When you're reading code, the same thing happens, the same spots, but there are spots in the right hemisphere that light up as well. And so what code is and what this, what I think a universal language will become is not a language that we speak direct in a way, it's how we've communicated our language into computational language. So from natural language to computational language, and then that spits it back out at us. So now we, if we want to, if I want to make a website that has this really, really wild functionality, I don't have to learn how to code because there's large language models and I can be like, yo, make me a website that does this, that, and the other, and it'll do it. And then you'll say, oh, it's a bug. It, it does something weird here bug check this code and it'll bug check it. It'll find the bug and it'll correct it in seconds. The fascinating part of that is we've outsourced it. So where we don't have to compute that in here anymore, 
And we've been doing that since we've been writing literature and putting handprints on cave walls for 40, 70,000 years. We've been externalizing it, but it still seems to work. It seems like a shortcut, but it still seems to work for some reason. It's, it's fascinating because we generations now, like GPT was around before GPT-4, but why did GPT-4 really, really, you know, make people turn their heads? Because the user interface made it simpler for us. Like, man, I don't want to have to learn coding or I don't want to have to learn something new. I just want something that looks like an average at, app or a chatbot when I ask it a question and I want it to translate it into whatever it needs to and then spit it back in natural language for me. Now it can do that. So there's something about language that's fascinating. Maybe it started with mushrooms and it accelerated the, you know, the, the, the parts of our, the lingual centers of our brain. And then we create language, which is an externalization of mind. And then that becomes so much that we need to put it down somewhere. We need to record keep it. Literature, hard drives now. Now algorithms, because there's so much data, to sweep all that data from all the massive amounts of uh, stuff that's online into a quick computation. So anything I want to know about, I can get a semi-sensible and sometimes a very intelligent answer from large language models. The, the last thing I want to say about language models and, and you know GPT specifically is there's something on the horizon, and I don't think most people who aren't following AI understand this, that once we... It used to be a tons of different kinds of AI. Now there's one that all these companies are using, and that's large language models, which means there isn't like 2% increase over here, 2% increase over here. Anything that Bing, you know, which Apple is using, uh, or I'm sorry, Microsoft is using, anything that GPT, anyone who's training language models, it's going to be replete across the board and primarily an open source technology. I hope I'm not getting too heady for listeners, but open source um, not closed and centralized uh, software, but open source software is accelerating even faster. So large language models started accelerating faster because everyone was working on one system. Now we've open sourced it to any programmer and they're making plugins and it's evolving even faster because of that. Tristan Harris was saying 2024 might be the last human election in the United States. And to make that kind of a statement, he's in a high regard when it comes to looking at the dangers and, and what AI is presenting to us. And he's saying, I, I don't see how by 2028, we can have another human election because everything about government, everything about economics, everything about law, maybe not everything, but very huge transformations are going to happen in all those sectors, all within a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. That to me sounds like a karmic choice point like we're presented in ayahuasca, but this is happening to the whole world. I've always felt that the rapture would be like a DMT trip for the entire species. <laughs> right, yeah, no doubt, yeah. There's there's a lot there. I wanna back up on one thing that you said because it is, it is a concern, and as far as I know, this is still the case, is that GPT itself, OpenAI, is, is not operating open source. They're, 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 what, they're allowing, what they're allowing is API access to GPT, which is kind of providing similar functionality in that other app developers can build apps that use the GPT technology. But as far as I understand, 
their platform itself and their training data is not open source. Do you know something different? Because other people have been really complaining about this. That's exactly correct. And it was actually Bill Gates had a big hand in that saying like, we we can't make this open source. And you can say whatever you want about Bill Gates, but he's not the only one. There are people that you might trust a lot more that are also saying like, I don't know about open sourcing this. Me personally, I kind of fall in with Bill Ottman from minds.com. He's like, open source is the only way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, everything closed source is going to become a dinosaur very, very quickly. And so you're right. It's not open source. We have access to it and we're helping them train it because it was rolled out to now 100 million plus people within the first five days. You know, it's, it's incredible how many people signed up for it. Um, so we're helping train it, but no, it's not open source. And um, there was this open letter from people like Elon Musk, Tristan Harris, a bunch of people saying we need to halt the development of AI, especially language models, until we better understand what the ramifications are going to be. And I look at this as like Pandora's box. We've already kind of opened it. Now people have an understanding of what they can work on very quickly to start catching up. And I think Pandora's box was like the lid was lifted a little bit and it hasn't been fully shut because it can't fully shut again. And um, a lot of things are going to start changing this decade. I've been seeing it before I even understood the language models. But a lot of things are going to be changing here very quickly because I don't think we can unopen source what was uh, what the the independent open source programmers now understand they can use this for. Because all you have to do is take GPT and add plugins that remove its guardrails. So maybe you don't have complete access to open AI's you know, underbelly, but I don't think we're too far away from you know, Pandora's box. The lid's going to fly completely open here soon. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, that people who aren't following this don't really understand and humans in general, we're much more linear thinkers than logarithmic or exponential thinkers. So it's really hard for us to kind of gather a mental picture of what exponential progress looks like. And that's, it's precisely what machine learning algorithms that are self informing are, that's the pace that they're moving at. And I mean, obviously, for anyone who is following AI, we're talking about paradigm shattering things occurring on a monthly basis now that as these algorithms become more and more learned there it's going to that time frame is going to shorten and shorten and like I was talking about in the last episode of the podcast like that's the notion of the singularity that Terence McKinney used to always talk about is the the time frame between reality shattering innovation becoming smaller and smaller and smaller until that gap is almost non-existent and like what is that future going to look like that is really a bizarre thing to contemplate and i can't see another way to hit that state than other than machine learning because of the way that these algorithms are self-informing and are learning every moment that we're utilizing them in whatever fashion. And it's like, yeah. And I mean, I get the argument between open sourcing and and keeping things closed, but you know, at the same time, there is a huge level of concern brought up when a company like OpenAI is developing this, this unbelievably reality shifting technology and they're doing it as a private company and they're doing it without regulation at least at the time of recording of this podcast and it's like okay like you are literally somewhat artificially creating the power of god it could be said right from one perspective and 
it's like obviously that's not the the truth of the case but uh, from a practical sense it's a lot more powerful than anything that we've been able to wield so far and we don't even understand its power yet is the problem obviously and the number one concern amongst people but it's definitely going to be a really interesting thing to to just see the the level of drastic change and just witness that unfold over the next couple of years and it's going to be so much faster than people think i feel like i have these conversations with people and they're like yeah man the 2030s are going to be great like no dude we're talking about in the next couple of years like the world is going to look a lot different and it's going to be that soon and that is a fact jack as long as this stuff keeps going and keeps developing which it's showing the exact opposite of signs of slowing down there are no signs of slowing so it's going to be really crazy. And, um, you know, language in and of itself, because we're such linguistic creatures, everything that we describe, every every way that we communicate, everything about our internal narrative all relies on language. And it, it, this conversation was making me think back to something that you mentioned in Chimatica, your documentary, where you mentioned Dan Winter's experiments that showed how Hebrew and Sanskrit, when spoken, uh, create a vibratory frequency that can literally move matter into sacred geometrical patterns and kind of like cymatic patterns and stuff. And I've always found that so interesting because like you were talking about, like before the splitting of the tongues or whatever, it's like there there does seem to be this kind of or origin language before it was split into so many things. And that origin, that originating primordial language seems to hold some type of deeper relationship with space time and the relationship between acoustic energy and physical matter in some way that we can't really claim to understand at this point. But another thing that's really interesting about that and something I've mentioned here as well before is that uh, in 2014, I begun having a series of experiences on DMT, where I was witnessing this written language that really resembled Hebrew and Sanskrit. And also after spending years reading books and looking at different languages, after these experiences, I found an alphabet called the Khmer alphabet, K-H-M-E-R, that also really visually looks very similar to it. And I was talking with you about this in Austin recently at a show I was playing that you were at. And you mentioned to me a friend of yours, Danny Goler with a G, Danny Goler, who recently like kind of accidentally stumbled across the ability to under the influence of tryptamines, um, like use utilize a laser to see similar characters within the laser beam with the assistance of these tryptamines. I would love for you to just riff on that for a second. I know we don't have too too much time left, so we can start bringing it home here. But I would love for to to get that in here. Yeah, so Danny Goler is <clears throat> such a wild person to know. He, um, I met him down in Costa Rica, but I saw his video before where he's using a very specific frequency laser. And on DMT, he, he started noticing that if you look at where the laser meets the wall, you could see into the wall or the chair, whatever you're looking at, and then conforming to the anatomy of the wall or the, the structure of whatever you're looking at, there's code. And um, I don't remember all the different kinds of characters. He showed me some of them. I would assume Chimera was one of them. Um, and he he started to notice this also evolving. The more he watched it, the more it, it 
how should I say it, knew it was being watched and started communicating with him more. So evolving over time. And um, I, I don't want to like put words in his mouth or anything like that. But he was telling me that, you know, a technology of sorts on DMT started moving across the room itself and creating itself as kind of like a little operation unit and some, I don't know, kind of like a device, but not that we would completely see as a device we'd probably look at it and be like oh that's that's a cool like pillar like piece of art or something um and so that's on dmt which is interesting we're still we have very little clue what dmt you know why we produce it all the time in the brain why it's in the cerebrospinal fluid and bathing our brain all the time and why if you upregulate it you have these massively altered experiences that seem to have a reproducible landscape and also some very consistent characters in that space. Mm. So to me, I don't know if we're future and we're starting to see when we do start simulating reality a lot more, DMT is allowing us to see into the future code that will be the formal societal representation of these objects, or if we're already in a simulation, or if he's just nuts and he's just seeing something. I, I don't really know, but I tend to be open, very open-minded to what that could be. And um, I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, your brain is just running simulations nonstop about the world. It's like, but if you do this, if you say this, this could happen. They could react like this. And, you know, if you don't do this, blah, blah, blah. And your heart is really just the, like the final say, like, you know, the answer is yes, we're moving forward. Or like the answer is a no on this one specifically. So it's it's hard to say what's actually happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think suffice it to say, maybe in, in our you know part two podcast or something like that, we can get into uh, Ulrike Grenocher. It's a, it's a lady who was on the Solari Report. There's a YouTube video talking about some of the most wild um, technological um, advances that we wouldn't have heard of. And I'll just throw one of them out there as we wrap up. Um, salmon roe, salmon eggs, were, you know, coming from uh, like farms, basically. So these, you know, are salmon that now need antibiotics because they're living in kind of like aquaponic farms. They were basically placed in, um, the eggs were placed in an electrostatic field about 10,000 times that of the ambient air when uh, a thunderstorm's about to strike. 10,000 times that, but it regressed the DNA to ancient strains that have gone extinct. Same thing with wood ferns that was extinct for 150 billion years. Um, And it was regressing them to a time when they were more robust. They didn't need antibiotics and they had a genotype or a phenotype, their expressive um, part that had been extinct for quite some time. So that's frequency. That's electrostatic fields. And, and that video in and of itself is just absolutely incredible. But to think of what time means when you can regress your genes because of an electrostatic field, to think of why seeds germinate primarily when there's lightning strikes, you know, the seeds start to germinate primarily at that point, not just when it rains, but lightning helps germinate it. That's the electrostatic field. Mm-hmm. There's something interesting between dna and the electrostatic field that is just ambient around us and those frequencies and also this time this time thing like we regress back we can regress our dna back with the use of this technology and then also i i somewhat kind of i'm still toying with the idea that dmt 
helps us see into probabilities of the future. We're, it's bathing our brain all the time. Our brain is there to simulate and project out forward into the future. DMT may upregulate our ability and some of the information streams that could come to us that can either help us with the simulations or already have the answer of where we're headed. So mm. that's, those are my thoughts on that. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot there. I want to look into that salmon egg experiment. That's, that is, there are so many implications of that. It's, you can't even, I can't even articulate it. Jesus, dude. I'll send you that link. Well, yeah, please do. Well, yeah, dude, before we wrap up, uh, first of all, thank you for doing this. This has been an awesome conversation. I expected nothing less, of course. And, uh, you know, I want to give you the floor for a second to direct everyone to any of your new projects or where you want people to go check you out, which documentaries you, you think people should start with if they were unfamiliar with you, et cetera. Yeah, man. I just did a film with Aubrey Marcus called Awake in the Darkness. That's up on his YouTube page. Uh, since then, I've made a film called Game of Money. That's going to be on Tim Pool's uh, channel, timcast.com. Uh, that's all about the Federal Reserve and what money is. It's a social agreement, it's a technology, and it's rapidly changing into the digital right now with CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Um, but I would say go to my website, benjosephstewart.com, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, benjosephstewart.com, and you'll see all the content that I'm making. You can sign up, become a member, and get access to all my mini docs. I do weekly content, and I put it out there Lately, I've been talking about like um, a lot of AI, GPT, and how ancient gods like Moloch and Baphomet are actually making a resurgence today um, because of the advent and the rapid um, acceleration, not just of technology, but um, a globalizing world with our economic system. It's very interesting uh, stuff, but I do it in a really like comedic mini doc way. So, um, yeah, go to, go to my website, go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash Ben Joseph Stewart, and you'll see all the content I've been making. Awesome. All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. And hopefully we do a part two soon, dude. We will. Yeah,